Welcome to Practical Christian Living. So Jesus had a scope of not delivering them under the Roman yoke of bondage, but instead of delivering them from something far greater, and that was delivering them from sin. The very thing they hoped that he would do, he did on a grander scale, but they were upset because it wasn't on the scale that they wanted. Following Jesus means we are spiritually free. We are free from the consequences of sin. We are free from having to follow rules or religion to be close to our Savior. We are currently in Luke chapter 24 here on Practical Christian Living in our series, Jesus Appointments. And today, we're looking at the encounter Jesus had on the Emmaus Road, the day he resurrected with two of his followers. It's amazing, stay with us. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you that we can praise your name, lift you up, worship you. We thank you that we're able to open up our Bibles and look at these passages that have been around for so long and speak to us in just such incredibly powerful ways. And now we pray that you would be our teacher as we consider this amazing text. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today in our study, we're going to be looking at finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And we're going to do that through that great post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And you remember, he eventually spends hours talking to them about where he was found in Moses and in the prophets. So that's what we're doing. Now, we're going to bounce off of the Emmaus Road text, and I want us to read through here. There are three or four applications that I want to make from that text, and then I want to give you examples of what Jesus was talking about. Literally, if you were to go back and look at all of the prophecies, promises, and pictures of the Messiah in the Old Testament, it is an in-depth study that would take I, I, I don't even know, years. You could, you could probably spend the rest of your life looking into the Old Testament because it is so rich in giving us things about the Messiah, specifically things about Jesus Christ. So we're going to do this, as I said, first of all, by looking at the Emmaus Road experience. This is the day that Jesus was resurrected. We see that clearly as this text develops. So let's pick it up in verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. Now behold... That's going to tell you something really amazing is going to happen here. I've said oftentimes we don't have anything equivalent to and behold. I can say, check this out. It doesn't, doesn't <laughs> even come close. And behold, two of them were traveling that same day to the village called Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem. This is the day Jesus was risen from the dead. And then it says in verse 14, and they talked together of the things that had happened and so it was while they were conversing and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So Jesus just kind of joined up with these disciples, started walking along with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not see. Now, I cannot tell you how many sermons I've seen pastors pause here and talk about possibilities 
as to why they couldn't see Jesus. Maybe he'd been beat up and crucified so much he didn't look like himself anymore. They weren't expecting to see Jesus, so they didn't recognize him because they didn't expect him to. He had a glorified body and there were some changes in it so he didn't look like himself. But the text itself tells us why. And it's none of those. The text says, verse 16, but their eyes were restrained so they did not know him. God did something supernaturally in these two disciples that when they saw Jesus, they did not recognize him as Jesus. It makes me wonder if God doesn't do that periodically in our lives. Sometimes we say things like, where's God in all of this? And God could be like, I'm right here. Your eyes are just restrained from seeing me. That God wants us to walk by faith and trust in him. And so he's got his purposes here and it becomes pretty evident why he restrains their eyes. And so then uh, in verse 17, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you're having with one another and you're so sad? Then the one who was called Clopas answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have not known these things that have happened these days? And he said to them, what things? Which is funny. That's like, that's a sense of humor. What, what things? Here he is, Jesus. He's been intimately involved in all of it. He wants to hear from their perspective. What things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. Now, their hope is gone. We were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. But tell me, what did Jesus do on the cross? What was the work that he did? He redeemed Israel. He not only redeemed Israel, but the Bible tells us that on the cross, Christ redeemed and paid for the sins of the entire world. So they had this little narrow window. We were hoping that he would redeem Israel and God had a bigger picture in mind and also they had a different scope in mind. When they were thinking of redeeming Israel, they were thinking politically. Israel was under Roman bondage. At one point, some of the disciples came to Jesus with the story of Pilate. Remember, Pilate's the governor. He's the one running, running Israel at this point. Of Pilate slaughtering Galileans between the temple and the altar in the blood of their sacrifice. Their blood mingled with the blood of the sacrifice. This was appalling to them. And when they went and told Jesus, Jesus didn't go, yeah, what a horrible, awful thing. We need to get Rome. We need to get out of here. Instead, Jesus said, do you think you were any better than them? But I tell you the truth, if you don't make sure things are right between you, then you will pay things that may be even worse than this. Jesus used it as an opportunity to talk about spiritual things. So Jesus had a scope of not delivering them under the Roman yoke of bondage, but instead of delivering them from something far greater, and that was delivering them from sin. The very thing they hoped that he would do, he did on a grander scale. But they were upset because it wasn't on the scale that they wanted. 
I don't know if that sounds familiar. A little too close to home, maybe. Indeed, besides all of this, they said, it is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women arrived from our company who arrived from the tomb early and astonished us when they did not find the body of him who came, saying that they had also seen a vision of an angel and said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us, that would be Peter and John, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow in heart to believe the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken. And I wonder how often Jesus would use these words today. O foolish ones, and slow in heart to believe all that's written in the prophets. What we have in the Old Testament in the way of prophecies is phenomenal. It's unlike any other book. There's nothing that can be compared to it. There's no other religious book, ancient or not, that is historically accurate, geographically accurate, when it ventures into the realm of science, scientifically accurate, and spiritually accurate. There's just no other book like it on the face of the earth. And it gives us, it's prophetically accurate. It tells us prophecies that come true. But if you are not searching for God, if you don't want to find him, you're not going to find him. The Bible says, if you search for him, you will find him when you search for him with all of your heart. And so if you half-heartedly search for God, or if you search for God not wanting to find him, but wanting to disprove, it will be a hard thing for you to find him. When I was a youth pastor, there was one of the kids that came in and uh, gave his life to Christ and became a regular part of the youth group. Years later, he told me that when he first came, he had, got, he had become a part of his friends. He was like 13 years old. He had become a part of his friends that had joined a, a satanic cult. Now, remember, in, in, in the 70s, these satanic cults were all really made up. There was no real big picture of the satanic cult. The whole Mike Warnke and the high priest thing was all made up. It was all a lie, which is just important for us to realize that people aren't always honest. But they had wanted to make up this satanic little cult. And he came to me and he said, finally, I wanted to come to the youth group and hear things about God that we could pervert later on in, uh, in ceremonies. And God touched him and saved him. So God could save anybody, right? God could do a work and save anybody. But if you are closed and if you're ready to pick apart every little thing, I found that anymore I don't go over a lot of prophecies or proof of Old Testament texts, proof of them being ancient. They, they found recently, I, I say recently, but 20 years ago, a Sennacherib cylinder in Babylon. This is in Iraq that tells the same story of Sennacherib attacking Israel under Hezekiah and Isaiah. Most scholars still believe to this day that that story's made up, that the children of Israel in Babylonian captivity made up all the stories of the kings and all the stories of the judges and that they aren't really true. And so then you find something that gives evidence that the story was indeed true. And to me, it's so powerful to me, I'm like, evidence. It's just, it's evidence. And I start sharing with someone and I find that they, they don't find it as impressive and they don't believe because they don't want to believe. 
and they're slow in heart to believe. They're not searching. We had, at our apologetics conference, we had Frank Turek with us. How many of you guys were here when he, when he was here? One of the things that, that Frank Turek will do, he goes into colleges and he debates students. And the students come in with all the words, their all the questions their professors have, and he debates them. And when he finds one that's just particularly antagonistic, and I've heard him do this before, watched him on his videos on YouTube, he'll say, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? And I've never heard him say, one of the kids say, yeah, sure. They all say no. And that just reveals their heart. They are not, they are not searchers. They don't want to know the truth. If Christianity were true, would you believe it? No, I'd stand against it. So then that, that gives you the heart they're going to come against things in the Bible because they don't, they don't want it to be true. I spoke with the skeptic not long after that and I asked him the same question and he goes, of course I would want to know the truth. And I said, that's great. Because that shows that at least he's open, that if there's some evidence, he's going to go, yeah. And I would just say, if you're a skeptic and you're listening to this, and that's possible, maybe you're listening and, and you're just thinking, what a, what, what a bunch of hogwash, these Christians, they're so brainwashed. You got all that stuff going on in your mind. I would just say to you a little bit of humility. Approach God's word with some humility because God responds to humility. And maybe you'll look at the evidence and be overwhelmed with it and find yourself walking in the truth instead of being opposed to something just because you think it's not the truth. If, if you are a critic, I'm going to say you probably do not have a good understanding as to what Christianity is. You think you know what it is, but you do not have a good idea of what Christianity is. So slow and hard to believe, oh foolish ones. How much time did I use for that? Too much. Um, and so then he explains to them from beginning with Moses, verse 27, he expounded to them the scriptures concerning himself. And I've never heard this passage taught or taught this passage where we haven't said, I wish we had that. But we have the Old Testament. We can go back and we can look. And so in verse 28, they drew near to the village where they were going and he indicated that he would go further. And I think Jesus would have. Had they not invited him in, he would have went further. But they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is towards evening and the day is far spent. And he went to stay with them and it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. Now, first of all, he responded to their invitation. And I want to say that Jesus will always respond to our invitations. When we go to him, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, when we go to Christ, or when we say to him, Lord, I want you in my life. Come walk with me. I want to know you more. I want to know you better. Those are the kind of things Jesus responds to. If we don't give those invitations, he moves on because he's looking. We have that. We have the power over the door of our lives and we open it up to receive him and to invite him in. Not only when we're born again, but also as Christians, how involved do you want Jesus in your life? You can get him very involved, which is the greatest blessings of all. Or you can say, I can guard this little part of my life. I want Jesus kind of on the outskirts of my life. And so Jesus went in. S secondly, again, I've heard people say, well, they, uh, they knew it was Jesus because they saw his wrists. They'll go through the big thing. You break the bread and you give them the bread and you can see the nail prints. And so they know it's Jesus. The, the text tells us we don't have to we don't have to guess like that. What does the text say? Verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. 
God had restrained their eyes. Now God opened their eyes. It's funny how many things that we get caught up in in studies that we don't need to talk about. Even talking about what other people teach. I don't need to talk about it, but I am. <laughs> and he vanished from their sight, which of course is the case, right? Je their eyes are open. They're like, Jesus, poof. <laughs> He's gone. And so it says, they said to one another, verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us and while he opened the scriptures to us? If we'll have an honest, open heart, I believe that our hearts will burn within us as the scriptures are open to us and that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so it says, then they rose that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem. Of course, what would you do? They ran back to the disciples to tell them they'd seen Jesus and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And we don't have that account anywhere. We have Jesus appearing to Simon in the Sea of Galilee later, but we don't have this account. And I kind of like that. There was a private meeting between Jesus and Peter after the denial of Jesus by Peter. Some things are just personal between us and Jesus. And I like that. Some things are nunya. Nunya business. <laughs> it's between us and God. And verse 35 and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And there's so much made of that. And it's powerful that Jesus is known in the breaking of the bread. And I think it's a picture. Some speak of communion. And yes, that we have the broken bread. And as we commune with Christ, he's known in the breaking of the bread. But, but breaking of bread is dinner. It's fellowship. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door and invites me in, I'll come in and I'll dine with him and he with me. I often say it's not what you know about God that saves you. It's what you, it's what you, it's knowing him that saves you. That's what breaking of bread does. When you have, when you have a meal with people you love, maybe haven't seen in a while, it's just the greatest thing. You just get together with the meal and you laugh and you catch up. It's just absolutely fantastic. Now meals with people you don't like so much is not so fun. But people who you really like and you're catching up with can be just incredibly powerful. And so that happens. Now let's go in and consider some of the things Jesus might have said. I, I find that the Old Testament has a category of three things. It has prophecies. And these prophecies are, are foretelling certain things the Messiah would for, fulfill. And you've got to know Hebrew prophecy to understand them all. This is important because sometimes you read that someone will say there's 350 prophecies Jesus fulfilled. So you go, you go to your computer and you look up the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. And then you start going over them and they're not a one-for-one -one correlation. And we're so used to one-for-one -one correlations. For example, Daniel says that 483 years after the command to rebuild and restore the walls of Jerusalem would be the Messiah and he would be cut off. And so you have the command to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem by Artaxerxes. There's a couple other options, but they're close enough by you could use any of them. And you go 483 years later and the Messiah is on the earth. And Jesus told them, you didn't know this day the day of your visitation. You should have known when the Messiah was here. That's a one for one cor correlation. We're told when the Messiah would be here. We look at it, the Messiah was there. Then there's partial fulfillment prophecies where a prophecy is given. It's partially fulfilled by someone. But there's supernatural parts of it that aren't fulfilled until Jesus comes along. We just have to understand prophecy, Hebrew prophecy. 
The same thing would be true if you're studying Nostradamus. If you want to know Nostradamus' prophecies, you start to read them, it's a bunch of gobbledygook. And so someone would have to sit down, you have to go through a class, or you have to do some reading on, on how people interpret Nostradamus' stuff because it's not really easy to do. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, you just have to understand Hebrew prophecy, that's all. And we've got a ton of it. We've got the way they interpreted the Old Testament in the New Testament. They tell you the prophecies, many of them Jesus fulfilled. Some of them are one-for-one one correlations and some of them are partial fulfillments of prophecy. Some of them were spoken to someone else but had a, a little part of it that, was, that couldn't be him. Like in Psalms um, 16, I think it's verse 10, where it says, you, and talking about David, you will not allow your Holy One. Uh, he, he says, um, you will not allow your, your, uh, the Holy One to remain in the grave or your Holy One to see corruption. And, and, and when you read it, it's obviously part of it is David, but there's one line that can't be David. It's got to be the Messiah. Just one line in that phrase. And so you learn those kind of things. Now, having said that, you got to know these things. Let me just give you a couple of prophecies that are pretty amazing. It's funny, the prophecies that I chose are the ones that say that he is God as well. Micah 5.2, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. This is a one-for-one one correlation that the scriptures say the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. By himself, not that impressive. Many people are born in Bethlehem. But with other passages that are included, like he would be called out of Egypt, that he would be called a Nazarite. How many people born in Bethlehem were also called out of Egypt? How many of them were from the tribe of Judah? How many of them were from the family of David? All those one-for-one one correlations, they all add up to be well, it's very few people who could fulfill it. And he fulfills a great number of those one-for-one one correlations. But in Micah 5.2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, you prophets, and you know this one fairly well because of Christmas, you who are little among the thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth the one to be the ruler of Israel. Note the way it's worded. doesn't say a ruler is going to come from you. Out of you is going to come the one who will rule Israel. That's a reference to the Messiah. And then it says, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And then it tells us that he was preexistent. So many of the prophecies are like that. They tell us a prophecy and what's going to happen, and then they tell us something about the one who is the Messiah, and that he is, he is God, that he's supernatural. I'll give you another one that you're familiar with, Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, I give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a child, and you will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Behold, I'm going to give you a sign. A virgin's going to conceive. And I understand there are a lot of arguments. People try to say, well, that word doesn't mean virgin. But if it doesn't mean virgin, then why behold and what's the sign? Right? Behold, I give you a sign. A woman who's not a virgin is going to bear a child. Doesn't work. Doesn't fit. Behold, I give you a sign. And by the way, the Septuagint used the word virgin. The Septuagint was written 250 years before the time of Christ. And the Septuagint is the Greek copy of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it used the Greek word for virgin. That's how they saw it. They knew it wasn't just a, a maiden in Israel was a virgin. That's just what they were talking about. And so to say, well, he's just talking about a girl. So that's their arguments against it. But notice that it says he is from everlasting. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. 
We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.